Hello and welcome to Pop Up Submissions Live. It's Sci-Fi Sunday with five scintillating submissions for your consideration, one prodigiously perceptive genius room, and two phenomenal panellists who are author of the Liverpool Mysteries, it's Jack Byrne, and Latopia's one and only John Duffy. Also coming up, a heated and possibly very ill-tempered discussion of the Oxford Comma. But you'll have to wait a few minutes for that. Now, I wonder whether your reading habits have changed during lockdown. I've recently realised that mine did, quite significantly. For a start, I seem to have mostly stopped playing computer games, which is quite a thing for someone who spent over 400 hours shamefully playing Dying Light. I've listened to far more audiobooks than I ever did before. My, my reading seems to become bifurcated. Some of it is very retro. I'm not ashamed to admit I've revisited the works of Dorothy Alsayers, P.G. Woodhouse and James Thurber. At the other end of the scale, I've rediscovered the many joys of modern sci-fi writing. And it seems to me that in a world gone crazy and mostly run by idiots, Sci-fi offers not just welcome escapism, but also, just maybe, a way through today's epidemic of insanity. Let me know what you think about that in the comments below. And don't forget to take part in today's live show by posting a comment in the YouTube or Facebook chat. And by using the hashtag Litopia on Twitter. And we're straight into the very first submission of the day. It comes from Liam. It's science fiction, as everything is today. Time travel. And it's called Commission's End. And here's Liam's blurb. Commander Turin didn't travel from the 20th 6th century to kidnap a foreign healer. But he will, if that's what it takes to save his mutant son. He'll have to move fast, though, before mutants from his own time overrun terror. And before the government conspiracy that's been working to prolong the Civil War decides that maybe one more nuclear blast is just what Terra needs. Hmm. I don't think it does, but we'll find out what happens. Um, let me tell you about Liam. Um, the novels, Liam writes, the novel's unique blend of genres draws on my experiences as a humanities professor at a polytechnic university. I've made a career of demonstrating the centrality of the humanities for a technologically advanced future. How true that is. That preserves both the planet and human flourishing. I've also, this is very interesting, I've also infused the work with insights from my second career as a military intelligence officer with overseas deployments to Afghanistan, Iraq, and various locations in the Pacific area of operations. Well, that's quite something. Um, and even more of a something will be this fabulous reading from Emily. Commission's End by Leem, read by Emily. Beatra Marrow, personal log. I tell myself these days are like those when we first met, assigned to different planets, committed to different lives, yet amazed to still be on the same team, trusting, wanting, loving. It's a lie that helps me sleep. I lie to our son too. I tell him we're one family, even though the war, the killing, the hate 
keepeth apart. I'm caught in a hole, a black, devouring hole, that's taking even my memories of you. Soon I will be that girl again, the one who never knew you. But I'll be older, cold, and the part of me where you fit will be dead. Ascanius the second, fifth day, eighth month, year 296, interstellar era. The thump of the assault team's autocannon drowned out chatter in Torvan's implant, and he flattened himself against the tunnel's side to avoid a blast of superheated air. Just beyond the torn blast door at the end of the carved lava tube, scarlet lasers slashed through smoke. He double-checked his mental count against the chrono displayed on his visor. Just forty seconds since the door breach. He'd missed the start of the raid because of his shuttle's slow descent from orbit. Even now, the pilot's words dug into him like a burr. You should be on the Gemini, sir. By regulations, the commanding officer stays off-planet during a ground assault. Well, slag regs. Rules wouldn't stop him from recovering his family. Not this time. At sixty seconds, he charged his tack laser. No more waiting. Go time. Torin charged through the shattered blast door just as another explosion rocked the cavern. A chunk of stone struck his chest plate. He blunted its force by letting it spin and drop him to a firing position. The practice manoeuvre awakened a dormant battle fury, but the berserker died at the sight before him. Flares launched by the clearing team hovered like angry red stars at the roof of the cave, casting shadows around scattered boulders and stalagmites. Too many shadows. The chamber was huge and the quick strike they'd planned was a bust. The cavern had been too far under an extinct volcano for scanners to pick up its size. Now they'd pay for their ignorance in precious time, seconds, minutes even, for the defender's shock to turn into resolve, surprise into escape. Bouncing back to his feet, Torin threaded around boulders towards the firefight. The smoking remains of a shield's generator revealed the source of the blast that felled him. With shields gone, his platoon would make short work of the defenders. Even before he caught up to the assault team, his exo's voice sounded sharply in his implant. Cease fire! Cease fire! No more hostiles! Say again! No more hostiles! Storin skidded to a halt. He disarmed his tack laser and clipped the blocky mag to his side. A cluster of disarmed mutants, changelings, knelt in the corner of the cavern. Commandos from other sectors herded more of the deformed humans towards the group. Some changelings were bare-chested, protected only by keratinoid scales covering their bodies with organic armour. Others had the more common deformities of gigantism, exoskeletal growths and cranial ridges. Field medics moved through quickly, triaging the ones with the worst injuries. Uninjured ones were fitted with cryo-restraints. As Torin surveyed the scene, scores of gelid mutant eyes followed him. It only took Torin a second to dismiss the captured lings as nothing more than soldiers. So much for nabbing the leaders and civilians who travelled with them. They were breathing without helmets, so environment controls must still be up. Good. He retracted his visor. The air was cold as space, but eyes and ears were better for what he was looking for than helmet sensors. The commandos who caught sight of his hooded eyes and chiselled brown face stiffened and turned back to their tasks. Two slipped behind him like ghosts, pulling security. Torin acknowledged them with a curt nod. Where were they? He couldn't have been wrong about the DNA signatures. His wife and son had to be there. While he might not recognise his son after three years, he'd know Beatra at a glance.
Thank you very much, Liam, and thank you very much, Emily, as well, for kicking off uh, off the show, and great, with a great reading. Uh, let's have a look at the Genius Room and see what they're saying. And you've got some nice words of prize there, Liam, for the, for the blurb. Matt says, nice blurb. Uh, Lex, uh, very good to have you in the Genius Room. Lex says, the problem with nuclear blasts is you can't stop at just one. And how true that is. Um, Annie says, writing's good, but I'd like to get into the protagonist's head. Um, quite a lot of description, says Matt, but I can't see the opening scene. Hannah kind of sums it up for me. She says, it's a bit generic. I haven't hooked onto anything. It does feel a bit generic to me. That's what I wrote down. Um, that doesn't mean to say it won't find its market. Um, and I, defi- I definitely listen to it. I'm not sure I'd invest a huge amount of time reading so far, but I would definitely listen to it. Um, and Tom says, you've nailed the military SF voice. There you go. Um, Terry says, he says the attack was a bust. Then almost the next sentence, it was over, and um, Pamela Joe says, this is an example of media rest. It is, actually, yeah. Uh, both uh, what works and what doesn't. Writing is lovely, says Stacey. I'm seeing the tension, but not feeling it. I feel nothing. I'm an empty void. <laughs> okay, sorry about that. And he says, feels a bit more like sci-fi role-play for me, but as genre writing, others may like it more. Good sense of urgency, says Annie, but need something a bit more. Hmm, all right. What's your first reaction there, Jack? Uh, combination. It was well-written and well-structured, well-presented. But beyond the first, the opening, I thought, okay, this is going to be interesting. It's given us a bit of background of where it is in the universe or on other planets. The blurb talked about time travel going back to the 26th century. Uh, So I thought, okay, there's going to be lots of interesting stuff going on. Once we got into it, it was a military engagement that could have mm. happened anywhere, anytime, any place. Unfortunately, it read like an ambush or a, <laughs> a short battle scene, and it could have been anywhere. And that was my problem. Then after you get the action scene, you get the description of the mutants and the changelings and so on. And that kind of, you know, brings in a different dimension. But the problem is these things are separate and they're not interwoven you know you you don't you know i don't know where in the world this is or what time it is but it could be it could be in the middle east right now there's nothing to say you know what i mean so i think all the elements are there they're just not integrated together yeah yeah, it that's, felt. That's kind it, of my view, I think. Yeah, it did feel a little bit generic to me, but I would, I would definitely listen to it. But I'm, I'm not sure I'd spend a lot of time actually reading it. Do I want to know what happens next? Oh, I'm not sure, and that's sort of an acid test for somebody I mean, who's, who's reading submission. Thing, yeah, of course. The one thing I add is, we don't know from this what the big idea of the novel is. Uh, is it time travel? Is it interplanetary travel? What is it? Whatever it is, try and drop it in at the beginning somewhere, just to give us a clue, an idea of where the whole thing is going. Otherwise, we do end up with just the military stuff. Yeah, fair enough. John? Uh, Yeah, I would have to agree with what Jack said there. I've I've just written one word on my pad, and it's generic, funny enough, which is the words come up a couple of times. Yeah, it has done. We felt we've been here before. I mean, it's competently done, and it's it's, it's nicely written and and all of that, but there's nothing out there which is such public rights, and this is a bit different, you know, because we've got got an engagement with some, you know, mutants on on, on a planet. But as Jack points out as well, I guess it could be anywhere, really. There's no kind of nothing sketched in there, and, and we don't really... 
get uh, you know we're not getting particularly close to the main protagonist at the moment um he, he could be any man he could be any soldier or any commander rather than mm-hmm. anything specific the, the thing i did make another note about was uh, on, I, I like the little twist at the end that in fact we find he, he's actually he's he's taken part in this to try and find his wife and son um, and that was from the blurb and it finally sort of tied in with the blurb i mean it's competent um I, i'm a bit ambivalent though in as much as i I, I, I would would it drag me in for more? I'm not sure either. Yeah, an awful lot of um, sci-fi does start like this, and it you know I mean it it's none the worse for that. It's just you know if you want to stand head and shoulders above the others, which you've got to really, Liam, if you want mm. to, you know, if you want to get um, a serious publisher behind you, then we are looking for something significantly different. It might just be the authorial voice. I don't know. Let's look at the numbers. Snowfall, you've got a 43, but that's because Jack hasn't pressed his buttons. Jack. I've just pressed it now. You've just pressed it. Okay, let's have a look and see. Let's watch a bated breath. All right, so that means the numbers have gone up. They've gone up to 55, and that's a very creditable, bit, uh, creditable beginning, Liam. I hope you're pleased with that. Let's go and look at our next submission, shall we? And submission number two is from linda who is with us and there's a qr code there too so you can you can be virtually with linda if you want to it's called the firefly tree hello linda ah wilds of northern new jersey and welcome to your characters too i hope they enjoy it all right so this is linda's blurb the martian chronicles meets bill rulebacks lucky turtle hmm in my 148,000-word science fiction novel, The Firefly Tree. Could the man Numi's been renting a room from be an indigen on a planet 5372's original supposedly extinct inhabitants? And more importantly, could she be falling for him? Let's find out in a minute. Uh, this is all about Linda. I've written three books of non-fiction, one of which, The Old Magic of Christmas, Llewellyn 2013, has a small cult-like following. I like that. Make it a big cult-like following if you can. My next book for Llewellyn is set, uh, scheduled to be released in fall 2023. It's ten years between books, Linda. Come on, pull your socks up. Um, a part-time library assistant and minority language advocate. I'm also a volunteer editor at Columbia University's Roma Peoples Project, where I work to bring Roma gypsy traveller authors into the spotlight. That's very interesting. Very interesting indeed. I'd like to know more about that. Um, but for the moment, we have a rather entrancing reading, I think you'll agree, from Mel. The Firefly Tree, written by Linda, read by Mel. Chapter 1. A New Life Among the Stars Professor Kipling had returned Numi's first draft of Jack in the Green and Green George, symbolism and sacrifice of the vegetal god in early modern Europe, with relevance scrawled in red across the top. Since when were old Earth college papers supposed to be relevant? In a fit of pique, Numi had cobbled together a new outline— Big Green Man versus Little Green Men, parallels in Old Earth and Indigenous Vegetal Iconography, and stuffed it under her advisor's door just before the pollen count had climbed. The outline had reappeared in her pigeonhole two weeks later, 
on Mischief Night Morning, with a little green man drawn in the margin and the words, See Me, written across the bottom. I was only joking, Numi said, when she'd wedged herself in amongst the dusty kachinas, piñatas, and Diwali lanterns in Professor Kipling's office. According to the headline in the tablet, the Northeast Quarter had just come through its worst season since Nasazi, and Professor Kipling was looking a little queasy. Even so, she said, the light from the dirty porthole shining through her disarranged curls, I think you're on to something. And the Hall of Figural Reliefs is open again. You should check it out. But I'm Old Earth, Numi said, stunned. I couldn't possibly write a paper on indigenous vegetal iconography. Professor Kipling smiled. Why not? Because I wouldn't know where to begin. You already branched out with that Grandfather Gloom paper. Inspired by her landlord's solemn impersonation of the gift giver last Toji Eve, Numi had written up her theory that the Grandfather Gloom tradition had originated not on Old Earth, but aboard the Eridu, where the North American Santa Claus had merged with the Nigerian Odo. Kelda had rejected the store-bought mask Numi had gotten him, a grey cardboard shell with a gold tinsel mane and wisps of white and cotton for whiskers, to carve one out of wood. With his own wild black hair serving as the mane, he'd looked more like something from Animal Wonders of Old Earth than Grandfather Gloom, but Dashi hadn't seemed to mind. Because Grandfather Gloom didn't speak, Kelda's accent hadn't been an issue. Whether or not Dashi had recognized the man behind the mask, was anybody's guess, since Dashi didn't speak either. You know, Professor Kipling said, spinning slowly in her chair, Professor Morrow in the Cryptobotany College has been working on identifying the various species of indigenous flora in the relief carvings. I could arrange for you to meet with her. But that's I.S. Professor Kipling gave her another wan smile. The colleges aren't at war, Numi. I know that, but isn't cryptobotany a little beyond my scope? Professor Kipling pushed the outline back across the desk. Maybe it's time you broadened your scope. Numi had always liked the way the Indigenous Studies wing of the museum smelled, half musty, half like the camphor they used to clean the incoming artifacts and incoming Indigenologists. Before her childhood friend Ravi had settled on the quiet worlds of epigraphy and funerary objects, he'd taken her on deep forays into the overflowing closets that were domestic and unclassified objects, and to magical paraphernalia to inspect the carefully organized hordes of what he would later refer to disdainfully as the deus stars of indigenous studies. But Numi had never been to the Hall of Figural Beliefs, which had been closed for renovation since before either of them had enrolled. While it was exciting to see the reliefs up close and very hard not to caress the silky Nova wood panels, Numi could make little sense of the figures in front of her. The hierophants were easy enough to pick out. Kinara, a.k.a. the Dark Lady of the Dramas, had played the Black Hierophant in a series of Chaturanga promos last fall, her long golden fingernails clicking against the squares on the game board, and Numi had seen pictures of her housemate Midori, dressed as the White Hierophant in the Chaturanga on Ice pageant at the Tarn. She understood that the other talent figures were members of the aristocracy, but she couldn't tell one mask, or visage as they were called when they appeared in the relief carvings, from another.
sorry about that, Delilah. I was still thinking, think quite hard, actually, uh, Linda. You've made, you've made me, you've given me uh, cause to to think furiously there, as I think the junior stream are doing. Um, so charming voice. Lots and lots of people said initially they they love your voice, and you have got a nice voice, actually. Yeah. Um, and of course, um, yeah, Stacy says love this voice in writing and both male and our narrator. Um, Matt says, and then it kind of diverges a bit. Matt says this opening better pie off soon. Right now I'm drifting. That is echoed by Terry, who said, I switched off. This is not engaging me at all. Um, but others are engaged. Um, yeah. And then, then they get confused. John, for example, John Bertel says, fun, but could you please simplify a bit? Um, Monsieur Dupré, I have to call you that. Uh, Camperide blurbs can can be risky. I read Martian Chronicles. It's quite dated. This isn't what I'm looking for a modern sci-fi. And Annie said, not seeing the world yet. But Annie also says, what does she say? She says, charming voice. And she also says, oh, she's suddenly about a romance, but I can't see it at the moment. She says, might not be the right place to start. Too much info, info dumping. Where's the tension, says Stacey. Why should I care? And Pamela Jo, uh, I love the Martian Chronicles, but that's the ethereal, magical Bradbury. Stacey, writing's beautiful, but story hasn't formed for me. So, mm, quite a lot to say about this. Um, first reactions, John, please. Yeah, I'm, I'm very, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm very much chiming with uh, the genius room really there is a charming voice but god i haven't got a clue what it's telling me to be honest i, I really don't know it, it, it's it's almost like a you know james joyce meets something else a oh really i can't really get a grip i can't get a grasp on, on, on what it is there's some charming writing some lovely prose but I, I don't know where we are i don't know what the purpose of this scene is and I'm confused, you know, really yeah. literally confused. I, I, I can't see anything, I can't see where it's heading at the moment. And the other thing confused me as well, I just did wonder, this may be a bit, bit left field, are we are we on, on terra firma or are we on some sort of a ship? Because it, there's one oblique reference to a porthole in it, and I don't know if it's yeah. a porthole on a ship or, or if it's if it's somewhere else. But you can definitely write, the, write, the writing is very nice in places, it's very mesmeric almost at times. Yeah, I think, I think it is, yeah. But it really needs, for me, I can only say it really needs a good old prune. You know, it needs and a, a, a bit of direction to it. All right, you're talking as an um, editorial process, not as in fruit. Um, yes, yes. Yeah, all right, okay, let's go back and see, because the genie I have actually kicked into Top Gear right now. Uh, Hannah says, I would read on, because uh, I like the writing. I'd read on for a while, <clears throat> hoping for a reveal. And Monsieur Dufresne says, comparative uh, blur blurbs can be risky. Yeah, I agree, actually. I don't think the blurb is very hot. Um, I read Martian Chronicle, quite dated. Um, opening's the hardest part for me. That's so true, Linda, absolutely. I think it's clever writing. I meant to um, stories, Pete, as well. I meant to say I really loved it. I did like the blurb. I thought the blurb was great. But I, did you? Know, very, very short and, conven and condensed, and, and I did like it. it. It sort of got me interested. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Okay. Push a button. Uh, push a button, Johnny. Yeah, yeah. And Jack, first reactions. 
Uh, it starts off in a kind of academic discussion. She puts an academic paper in, and that's what the rest of it feels like for me. You know, she's using a language that I would struggle to understand. You know, there's just so many names, so many characters, so many things dropped in with no context. And, you know, we expect the context to develop, but the danger is that people drop out before you, you know, have given them the context. We need yes. to know when, where, why, as people. Now, in that opening, we need to have a picture of where we are, what's happening. For me, it started when she was talking about the museum and uh, cataloging the incoming uh, items and the indigenous materials and indigenous peoples. Just expanding that a bit gives us an immediate sense of what we're dealing with. Two different cultures, two different worlds, the old earth world and this indigenous thing. But that's what she needs to get at. I think it's there, but I just think it's, it's too clever. And if you tell a joke at the beginning, mm. it has to be a funny joke. And uh, okay. you know, it just, uh, I think it, there is a joke there. I think there's a very gentle academic satire going on, actually. Yeah. Um, but whether that's enough, I mean, it's obviously... It's not working for you. It's not working for a lot of people in the genius room. So maybe maybe rethink that. Um, let's just... I want to ask both of you, actually, about this thing that uh, Pamela Jo mentioned in the genius room um, about media res starting. starting at This happens a lot in, in sci-fi, actually. Starting with a scene that's really confusing, all kinds of things going on, and the reader absolutely doesn't know where they are at the beginning. It's all, in this case, we've got all these, these, these strange academic names. Uh, and, you know, you've got, you've got to sort of engage or just stop reading the first page. Now, do you think that's a high-risk strategy to advocate, or do you think it normally works, Jack? It depends how you do it, like most things, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, you, have to, you have to get in when and where you are pretty quickly as part of that overall dynamic. So every couple of lines, the reader should be learning, oh, that's what's happening, that's where we are, that's who this yeah. is. So yeah. it can't be uh, in media as in like a ball of confusion because people won't get beyond it. But yeah. if there's enough to keep pulling someone in, then yes. But, you okay. know, it's a difficult thing to do, I think. It is difficult to do, isn't it? It definitely is. Um, I, I appreciate the academic uh, satire. I was getting a, an Avatar vi uh, sort of vibe here. Mm. I don't know if anyone else was. Well, I was just having a brainstorm. But I, I, did you, Jack? Well, I, I thought, yeah. And, and I think it could be really interesting. And that's what I was saying. That bit, you know, if it was more than a few paragraphs in, where she starts to catalogue and talks about cataloguing things coming in. Because mm. even though she's in the middle of doing things, we start to get that. Okay, there are yeah. indigenous people. Okay, there's an old culture. Okay, now yeah. we're getting, there's a story here. Is there a conflict between them? Which side is she on? Does the side she on mean that she's in trouble with her boss or her academic supervisor? Yeah. That's the story at this stage. That would help a lot more, actually, uh, to, to get us um, sort of investing and identifying with Numi. I mean, that was the, my biggest um, problem with this at the moment, Linda, that I, is, uh, you've got a nice voice. Uh, I think it's clever writing. It's, it's, it's a sort of sly sense of humour. I think it I could be really good if she explores those themes later yeah. on in the book, then just get us into it a bit quicker. Yeah. I don't feel I, 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 I'm not investing in Numi at all at the moment. I'm, I'm just, I just, you know, I just, I mean, she's not even one dimensional yet. There's not just... 
there's not one thing for me to quite to, you know, to start to invest in there. And I think that's for me. That's. And I'm what's... not sure where we are either. I'm, I'm not sure where we are with that. Um, yeah. Where, where exactly we are? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Andy says Avatar is. Let's be honest, awful. <laughs> okay, that's uh, that's two things we're going to fight about later. That and the Oxford comma. My word. Let's look at your numbers, Linda. At uh, fifty-seven, it goes up and up and up all the time. Actually, yeah. Well, I, I think. Hope hopefully you're not too uh, disappointed with that. I think uh, for me, actually, just to, to recap, Linda. For me, I just I just need that one or two little hints of emotion going on for Nomi. Some something that I can I can start to say to say to, to myself. I know how she feels, and you give me that, and the rest of it, I'll 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 work through. Pamela Joe says both writers have great skill and have a strong voice, but I get the feeling they're trying to write my writing class directions. Oh, <laughs> they just have have a bit formulaic feel to them. They do a little bit. Yes, I, I know what you're saying there. Good. All right, let's let's press straight on, shall we? Here we go. Submission number three. And I've got, yeah, I, I tell you, I tell you, I've, there's something very important here that I haven't done, actually, guys. So I'm going to, uh, I'm going to, yeah, I, I, it's not fair to hold things up. Let me read the blurb here, and then we'll have the um, the the reading, and then I'm going to um, introduce a very hot topic for discussion. Or rather, Kai is, in fact, because this is Winning Bettina. It's by Kai, Kai Tenley. And you've got another QR code there too, so please do use that scanner and go off to Kai's website. This is Kai's blurb. It's 1980, and 32-year-old Marsak lives in a tent on a balcony. The balcony belongs to a flat in downtown Woodbeard, Wood, Woodbead, the capital of the Federal Republic of Bettina, where he works for a third-generation politician and cigar-smoking playgirl who does not believe in the heresy of paying her lower-level staff a living wage. Hmm. <laughs> he lives in a tent because his measly income goes to his grandma and her hardy liver. But he's plotting an overthrow. He wants to win Bettina in more ways than one. I'll tell you about Kai. I work in publishing, says Kai, mostly as a book translator. And my creative essay, A Diet of 3,000 Years, appeared in the Illinot Review. I live in Ireland, but I was born in Germany. I'm married to an American. And I've spent time on six continents. You're a veritable United Nations. Including a few years as a student in South Africa. All of this has influenced the novel. Fantastic. Good melting point. Also, I like the Oxford comma. Right, I'm not going to talk about that at the moment, but we will after this uh, second... What a, what a treat we're in for. A second reading from Emily. Winning Bettina by Kai. Read by Emily. Chapter 1. I lived in a tent on a balcony. It was 1980 and my respectable age of 32 didn't make my unrespectable habitat any more appealing. The view didn't help either. Train tracks, a whole tangle of them, running parallel and crisscrossing each other to and from nearby Woodbead Union Station, made for all those high-speed night trains carrying supplicants and civil servants and suppliers of cash from every part of the country into the capital. It was the morning after Election Sunday, and as usual I woke to the sound of rumbling and screeching trains 
reverberating off the walls of a red brick and grey steel block of flats on the other side of the tracks. I unzipped my one-fam tent and stuck my head out, my breath illuminated by the street lamps below. There was nothing in my field of vision to suggest that, less than two miles from me, as the crow flies, fellow early riser Nancy Berg was probably at this moment waking up underneath the hanging satin and drapery silk of her sound-protected bedroom, where she was likely about to look at her whitening hair in her gold-rimmed mirror and digest yesterday's voter verdict that had turned her, just like Harriet Berg before her, into a one-term mother of the Federal Republic. Nor was there any sign of the buzz I knew permeated the city, nay, the country, the whole world, about the next occupant of the Grand Wham, someone who would have to resort to pressing or flat ironing or what not if she ever wanted to achieve the straight Thea hairdo of the Berg dynasty. Nafula Saranka, nobody with a name like that, had ever been elected to sleep for five years underneath the hanging satin and drapery silk of said sound-protected bedroom. She had campaigned on a single word, hope, hope and diversity, hope and equality, hope that we wouldn't get screwed by our own stupidity. Speaking of getting screwed, Imogen Mansion. Without her, I doubt I would have ended up living in a tent on a balcony. On my screwed wedding day, five years earlier, 4,000 miles away, on the other side of the country, I felt like I'd been sucked into one of those surreal paintings where stairs led into all directions at once. There I stood, in the entrance of a white wooden temple, the faces from the groom's side of the sanctuary staring at me like so many glaring spotlights. I muttered some incoherent questions about the empty bride's space and I received equally incoherent answers about there being no sign of the bride or her friends and relations anywhere. Remembering my Kimmy, which I seemed to have misplaced, I finally asked something more lucid. Did someone try to call Imogen? Holly and her telephone crew were standing closest to me. I tried a bunch of times, she said. No answer. Let me try again. She handed me her phone, and I dialed Imogen's number and bolted out of the door. Scanning the road between the temple and its adjoining apple orchard for any sign of Imogen, I impatiently listened to the regular beeping in my ear. Imogen wasn't picking up. Where on earth was she? What had happened? How could she and her family and friends and colleagues have all been mysteriously held up without telling any of us what's going on? Overtaken again by my surreal days, I hardly even noticed the white carriage still standing in front of the temple, or my mother still sitting in it, or my dad taking care of her, and I lurched past them onto the road and called the name of my almost wife, Imogen, Imogen, and it seemed as though my voice echoed back all the way from the white triangle of Mount Hood. And then was my surreal days messing with my mind. I thought I saw her. There she was, hiding in the apple orchard, peeking out at me from behind a tree. Between us, lying in the grass next to the road, was a black bicycle. I rushed towards this inexplicable image of her and jumped over the bicycle into the orchard, not caring whether branches slapped my face or the muddy ground splashed my white wedding suit. Imogen? Imogen! Are you okay? All right, so Genius Room straight away, please. Thoughts and reactions? Um, Monsieur Dupré. 
likes the title. Lots of lovely human stuff, says Eva. Eva's made her appearance. That's great. Blurb a bit confusing, says Hannah. Uh, what fun would it be to write a story of a man who lives in a beard? <laughs> yes, sometimes my, <laughs> my faux pas. <laughs> uh, Andy says, you had me at 1980 sci-fi. Yeah, me too. And then I got a bit lost. Uh, Matt thinks it's a clever title. I'm intrigued by the blurb. Um, and Monsieur Dupré suggests start off with a Marsac lives on a balcony. Yeah, why not? Love the first line of the blurb, says Stacey. Rest can be home. Terry says, like the blurb, but that second sentence is a killer. What was the second sentence? Uh, balcony belongs to a flat in downtown. It would be the capital of federal. But yeah, yeah, okay, fine. And uh, raise the stakes, Stacey. Confident writing, says Annie. We've got an interesting comment from Tom on YouTube about that, actually. So I want to talk to everybody about com what, what does com the confident writing mean, actually? Talk, talk about that in a minute. Um, Andy says, then you see, as, as the, the timeline extends and people start to get into it a bit, Andy says, feels a bit rambling, lost. And that's actually echoed by Monsieur Dupre, who says, I've lost the feed. Too much description, Barbara US. Like the writing, says Hannah, but I'm not sure this is the right place to backstory before the story to progress first. And Annie, who was initially very enthusiastic, says, this no longer feels like sci-fi. Oh, right. Okay. What does it feel like to you, John? It feels at the opening like two stories. I'm not quite sure about the gear shift uh, to the wedding sketch after yeah. the I found. I like the blurb. I love the idea of this guy living in a tent. Just, it just hit me from the start, which I oh, thought okay. was great. Hmm. I like this sort of painting in the idea that there's a negative dynasty in this place where he's living. The Berg, the Berg dynasty seems to be coming to an end. Um, they have a success of people who didn't get you know, re-voted. Uh, are re-elected so that that there's there's a nice bit of sort of gritty politics sort of shaping up there but then when we move to the, the wedding scene i'm sure it has relevance but i think it comes too soon um i think yeah. we need to stay where we were and and you know sketch that out a bit more yeah but again as per the first two subs we've had today i think the writing style is competent again you know it, it, you feel that this person can write um and and the, it sort of takes you along with it, but I think just structurally, so early on to make that change wouldn't wouldn't be my way of doing it. It wouldn't be. It would, I'd go. Oh, hang on a minute. I want to hear about the other bit first. Yeah. I don't really need to move to this yet. That thought is is echoed by a number of other people in the genius room. Actually, that I think who is it? Um, Pat Leger says, uh, "Why are we at the wedding? Is that where we should have started our last?" And I think Annie says, yeah, it feels like two different pieces of writing, which is exactly what you're saying, Johnny. And, and, and then sort of the, the, the bit which then confused me at, at the end was the sort of allusion to the black bicycle. You know, that sounded a bit sort of spooky. There's sort of slightly spooky element to it, yeah. which came, you know, up until then, it just it, it just read like, a, you know, perhaps a novel. There's nothing that says sci-fi about it to me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Maybe All right. A thriller, perhaps, or... Yeah, well, it's, um, to, to be fair to Kai, I mean, you know, the genre that Kai has said is sci-fi slash all, alternative history, and I can see, oh, see it sorry, very okay, much as fine, al yeah. alternative history, actually, definitely, and the sci-fi aspect, I'm not so sure. Uh, your thoughts, yeah. please, Jack. I like the... I like the I like the voice of it. I like the the descriptions. 
I mean, what was what I was saying about the earlier submissions was we needed a sense of place and time and what was happening, and I, yeah. I think we get this. I, I think there is a point, and uh, he, what he's doing is an alternate reality, an alternate world that's very similar to ours, but there are lots of key differences. Mm. And he indicates them very subtly, which is well done, you know, like the dynasty of the straight-haired bergs, you know, which is quite funny, I think, you know, the, the dynasty of the straight-haired, a bit like Trump's comb-over or whatever. Oh, my but, God. You know, so... Do, do you, did you have <laughs> but, to say that, Ray? You just ruined my Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but then in it, from the very beginning, you get this sense of uh, polarization. He's on his grandmother's balcony, she's got medical problems, and there's this dynasty of this woman who lives in a palace and gold, surrounded by gold and stuff and all that. So I really liked all that. And so I think he needs a way of bringing us to that realization quicker because you, as you can see from the genius room and so on people were really confused as is it now is it the future yeah. is it sci-fi what's going on so he yeah. needs a way of bringing a bang that this is near reality but it's not the reality you know i think mm. if people switch on to that then they'll find all the little things really interesting oh why is that then what's going on with that so i think it's 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 good but it just needs that extra little lift somehow Yes. And I think maybe, again, sorry to go on, but... No, no, uh, no, this is, this is gold dust, Jack. Please go on as long oh, as you yeah. want to. I, I think maybe the title could... He could do something with the title to give us that idea. So as soon as we see the title, then we know we're getting an alternate reality. Yeah. Yeah, that's and I think advice. that would resolve a lot of the issues that the, some of the listeners have had with yes. the piece. But I think it was well written. I think it was good. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right, actually. And I'm, yeah, maybe, maybe lose the sci-fi. I don't know. Uh, let's look at the numbers. And there's a couple, of, couple of interesting issues that are brought up by that. I want to talk about. Oh, well, actually, oh, you can't complain, Kai, because I think at the moment you're actually in the lead with the sixty. Can we just double, double check that now? It's like the scorecard. Yeah, that's right. It's slowly climbing, actually. And next two, who knows how many of the next two submissions are going to get. For the moment, Kai, you're absolutely in, in the lead. So I want to talk about a couple of things, all right? The first thing I want to talk about, I think there's going to be bloodshed on, on pop-up submissions today, actually. It doesn't often happen, but it might happen today, because this is, this is what I want to get everyone's opinion about, all right? The, and I'm going to freely admit, I didn't know what an Oxford comma was until Kai said in um, about me also i like the oxford comma Woo! and so i had to <coughs> uh, dig 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 now being educated in in the uk uh, my own uh what i was taught uh, at school was that the first sentence you see there is correct because it doesn't have a, a comma after the penultimate thing in the list and that the second one is incorrect however people brought up in the u.s often do i think mostly do use that comma and as you can also see my manuscript is replete with oxford commas have so you fabulous liam we'll give you more points for that hope the debate doesn't affect voting no worries liam oxford commas shouldn't change any minds they might do stacy they could do um it can it can change the meaning of sentences if you look closely at those two sentences they actually mean completely different things so guys have you ever heard of this thing before? And what does it mean to you? And how, I mean, how much are you prepared to fight tooth and nail for one or the other? Whose side do you come down on? 
I'm fairly ambivalent about it. I, I was like you, Pete, when I was sort of learning uh, English as a kid, the Christian brothers beat it into me that, you know, that the first option was the correct one. Uh, so no comma between the third part of the, you know, comma, comma, no comma. Uh, and it was only when I started uh, writing myself, I, I too had never heard of the Oxford comma uh, and, you know, sussed out what it was and I haven't want to find out what this is. I mean, it, it doesn't, I don't find it an affront or anything like that. I, I just, the way I've been taught is to sort of not use it, but I, I don't mind seeing it. If Jeff. I can sit on the fence. Yeah, Jack. I, I'll I'll do whatever the publisher tells me they're going to publish. Oh. So, <laughs> if they if they if they send it back and the proofreader has used or deleted the Oxford comma, as long as you're going to publish the writing, then that's fine by me. I do think the Oxford mm. comma actually makes more sense, but you know, I think it does actually. Yeah, big, yeah, it's not a big deal. But I, I do think there's one thing, though, that, I don't know, when I started writing, I panicked about grammar and punctuation. And it can put a lot of people off, you know, feeling <laughs> unable yes. to deal with that kind of language. Yes. And I think people, if they, they have to push ahead with the writing, they have to try and learn the grammar and the punctuation or find someone who knows it and get them to punctuate your writing. Well, that, that's because, actually right. Yes, well, yes. Yeah, I agree with that. Because Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it will I, get knocked back. You know, yeah. people will reject it on the basis of a stray comma or yeah. uh, the, the wrong... Like, there's a new dash now. Do you know the M dash? I never knew what that was until a couple of years ago. Oh, yes. I like M dashes, actually. I think they're great. Yeah. yeah. But, but are, you, you know what? what? You go on. Go on. What's, what's, what's your view on it in terms of submissions? So somebody sends something into you and you go... Oh apostrophe in the wrong place Ooh, that comma shouldn't be there how, how forensically do you read it as an agent um I, I don't usually. I, I, I allow a wide degree of latitude, good, actually, good. because of, yeah, of what, yeah. what Jack's actually said. Because I, I do think you've got to, you know, I'm giving all my trade secrets away here, but why why not? Because I think you've actually got to leave some errors in your manuscript, and that allows the editor to, you know, to sharpen their pencil and get stuck into the small <laughs> stuff, which is fine, because it means they're not going to mess with the big stuff. That's what I think. But that's well, a I, I sometimes glib say well that's what they get paid for that's what proofreaders and editors get paid for i know that's a very glib sort of thing to say it well, is I, I think i think essentially i think essentially if you can put essentially if you can put the words together you know in in, in a reasonably coherent way uh yeah. and with good presentation good spelling probably yeah. people will take well they'll cut you a bit of break won't they they, they won't go up there yeah right. exactly you know? exactly and i have to i just actually Kai. hopefully you're, you're with us saying just looking at this, it's blindingly obvious to me that we should all be using the Oxford comma, actually, because otherwise, as as I think as Linda in the in um, YouTube actually uh, she said, you know, court cases have depended on that because it can radically change the meaning of a sentence, and you know, with the comma, I mean, you're just being precise, you're making your meaning clearer. And what's wrong with that? Um, the other thing that we have to, John Mattel says, text to voice sounds better with Oxford. Of course it would do. Of course it would do. Yes, make more logical sense. Now, there's something else as well that <clears throat> I don't know if we can get it up, but there's a comment from Tom on YouTube about confident writing. I don't know if we, we've, we've got that again. We can find that. That would be actually very helpful because I think this is another point that we just want to to cover here. So Tom says, I don't disagree with confident writing quote, because I mean, that's something that I, 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 a comment I made actually previously, but I'd love a working definition. 
is it just you know it when you read it well it's it's partially that it's partially that um it's very difficult to be too precise about that i think but i don't know what what, what do you think um jack have you got any strong feelings about confident writing is like an elephant you you know you recognize it when you see it yeah i do recognize it when i see it and what it is for me is when somebody is unafraid to use a metaphor or to make a comparison that you wouldn't normally see or to bring in mm. a concept or an idea in, mm. a, in a different way that for me is confident writing what oh, i think people creative think writing too is, yeah, what I think people think it is, is overusing adjectives and adverbs and, and yes. filling out and making it flowery <laughs> and using the longer words that you know. And, yes. you know, and that's not it. That's yeah. not it. That's yeah. trying too hard and it's a route to failure. The simpler the writing, but the, the simpler you can write with the more content in that shorter passage or sentence yeah. is the key. So the shorter the sentence, but the more ideas, concepts in that sentence, the more power it's going to have, the more resonance. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. My, my suspicion, actually. Me, I, 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 go, no, go, go on, go uh, on, John. Sorry. I was going to say, for me, I like the, ca the, the cadence of people's writing as well. You know, if it, if it, if it sort of goes along nicely, um, and, and you, as, a, as a person who uses words yourself, you probably chime with that as well. But it has a nice rhythm and a nice cadence to it, that mm. works for me as well. And touching on what Jack said, I mean, you do hear the most awful, you know, people who are sort of seem to be hidebound by, you know, having used three adverbs every, you know, if you've used three adverbs on a page, you're dead. Or, or, or this sort of stuff. And, and I think that just sends out all the wrong messages to people. And yeah, yeah. If you read your, if you read your favourite authors, um, many times, I, I did this, for, for an author I like quite a lot. And I put, I put something into a writerly one time. And, uh, you know, the, the amount of sort of so-called faults that threw up were preposterous. This isn't a published book. You know, so I think you have to be careful. You, you, you can sort of take on some of this stuff on board, certainly. Mm -hmm. but, but the kind of this ultimate idea that, you know, you mustn't do this, you mustn't do that, you mustn't do this, you mustn't do that. It needs to be handled with asbestos gloves, really. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, by the way, John, I'm very personal rem remarks being made about you in the genius room. Um, uh, yeah, Stacey says Johnny's Johnny's kicking back with some Merlot over there. I didn't see that. They're obviously watching like an eagle. Is is that true? <laughs> Well, I don't know. I didn't hear it. I'll, I'll oh, deny right. everything. I'll work on the book. I've got the, the Baldrick pr principle. I deny everything until I know what it is. Barbara says, as, 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 excellent um, uh, comment. As, I mean, oh, wait, I don't know if it's excellent for the genius room. That's the definition of the genius room. Barbara says, confident writing to me makes me trust that I'm in good storytelling hands. How true that is. Mm. Uh, John Battelle says, confident writing to me is a writer trusting the reader to get it without explaining every little thing. Matt says, confident writing is that which does not shout, look at me, look at me, the author. And Monsieur Dupre says, oh, M Dash is back on them again. And uh, confident writing to me means when I read it, it sounds natural rather than controlled. Yeah, and Pamela Joe says, "Come to writing to me just means even if I don't get it yet, I read on because I want to get the the payoff." And Mr. Dupre is going on about the um, Oxford comma, which cost the U.S. Customs Department about six million dollars some years ago. Very interesting. Of course, <laughs> you're not in the wrong room, actually. Um, that's all right, Liam. It's very good to have you have you here, actually. Good. Excellent. Very pleased. Thank you for reviewing. The, the final thing I just want to say about confident writing, we may be going on about that a bit too much, but it's such an important thing, actually, because writers can so easily 
get their confidence knocked, especially at the beginning of the process when you're sending stuff in that you don't hear, you get rejections. You don't hear, you get rejections. Your confidence does does take a nosedive and you start to be a bit bit of a box ticking writer and play it safe. The other thing I want to say is that, to me, <clears throat> confident writing is, I think, inextricably associated with a really strong voice. And that, too, is quite, quite a hard thing to define. But you come across a writer who's got the confidence of are just writing with their own voice, and that comes over, doesn't it, Jack? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Mm. Cool. Excellent. It's hard to define, but easy to see. Exactly. That's absolutely mm. right. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Good. All right, so we are three submissions, and we have two more to go. Let's have a look at submission four. And this is from Tom. Oh, who is actually with us at the moment? Thank you, Tom. It's called Krieg. I like one-word titles, and I like that word. It's science fiction. There's a uh, QR code there, too, for Tom. At the risk of her father's militia career and her own life, a patriotic teen girl pilots a 100-ton bipedal war machine... Ooh, mech warrior. ...across her nation's border to rescue a family threatened by a drug cartel. Johnny's ordering some more mail, though. He's not paid the bill. (laughs) He hasn't paid the bill. (laughs) While that's happening, I'm going to tell you about about Tom. I'm a Bram Stoker Award finalist. That's terrific. And an award-winning author of seven novels with imprints uh, of (laughs) Penguin Random House and Simon & Schuster. Very good. And one each with Abrams and Skyhorse. Oh, yeah. I've also written for the comic book series Spawn at Image Comics, and my novel Party will begin making the festival rounds as a feature-length film. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a very large delivery of mail out has just gone down. <laughs> well, while we're doing a bit of unboxing there, I think we better have this reading from Bob. Krieg by Tom Levine, read by Barbara. When Lieutenant Rayner barks my name, I drop the hose and run full speed towards the sound of her voice, my rubber-soled combat boots squeaking across the yellow-painted concrete. Yes, sir! I snap a salute, body straight. A bead of sweat flies off my arm and lands in my eye. It burns, but I don't blink. The LT gives me the faintest nod of pride for my crisp response. I'm the best trainee on the base, and she knows it. I have to be. Standing beside her is a young guy, maybe my age or a little older, with the black markings of a Tierra Polvo family on his left cheek. I try not to let my expression betray my thought. Why is one of them here? Cadet Ishal Marquez, LT says to me, keeping things formal in front of the new person. This is Toma. He'll be helping out on the wash deck until we get his clearance to work on the Kriegs. He's going to be a tech. I don't even glance at him, but I do instinctively look up at one of the two-story, tall, two-legged war machines I've been washing. Krieg's machina represent the absolute best of our nation's combat technology. Most nations don't even have them in the arsenal. They'll let him work on our Krieg, sir? Lieutenant Reynolds face shifts into an expression I don't think she's ever given me. I think it's disappointment. Is there a problem, cadet? I would just think it's a security risk, sir. She steps into my personal space, 
not quite as near as our drill instructors get sometimes when they're yelling contradictory instructions at us to improve our stress inoculation. But she's close. Somehow, she says all this in one breath and has room for more. Maybe I'm not understanding you, Cadet Marquez. Are you suggesting to me that every background checker on this space and every pencil pusher up north somehow miss that this young man is some kind of spy for one of the Carcietas in Tierra Polvo? Is that your contention? You're that wise and that knowledgeable in ways of counter-espionage? Are we wasting your natural talents as a creek driver, spending this nation's money to train you up when you should be up north determining who gets civilian jobs on border bases? Is that what you're telling me? It can be kind of funny when an officer goes off on a cadet. It's not so funny when a cadet is you. No, sir. I didn't think so. Train him up on the wash deck protocols. She points to the creek hangar across a hundred meters of black tarmac from where we stand on the wash deck. I want every creek on the south line so shiny I can brush my gorgeous hair in the reflection. You get me. Another time I might have smiled. Lieutenant Reyna's head is shaved to the bristle like every military creek driver including mine. It makes the neuroelectrical connections in our creek helmets stronger than if you had a full head of hair. But now is not the time to smile or I'll be busting up push-ups on this deck until sundown. Yes, sir, I get you, sir. Then carry on, cadet. With one more look at me like I'm her troublemaking little sister, she adds quietly. You know better, shall. Dial it back. Lieutenant Rayner stalks off, leaving me alone with Polvo. Me and the LT have always been close. Not friends, necessarily, because that's hard to do with higher ranks. But still, friendly. Now she's upset with me and it's this dusty Polvo's fault. At least, that's how it feels. I check him out, expecting him to be doing the same to me in that, that boy way. My drab sleeveless shirt and the black torso band beneath it are soaked from washing this creek, making me exactly the kind of thing too many of our infantry guys like to lick their lips at. But standing there in frayed desert camo BDU pants and a fitted white shirt, the Polvo isn't looking at me at all. He's closely examining the Lovell Model Creek I've been washing. Hey, thank you very much, Tom. Um, thank you, Barbara, for a uh, great reading there. In fact, Barbara has made some comments in the Genius Room. Um, and we always like to hear from our narrators, of course. Barbara says, it was a joy to read, which is a great, fantastic comment. Uh, she says, I like this a lot, but if being a Tiriopolo, is a bad thing. I doubt Tama would be allowed near a creek with or without clearance, even for simple cleaning. And would he even get a clearance? Um, I don't know. I can't answer that. Tom can. I can't. Um, Johnny's being murdered, says Matt. <laughs> 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 it's just a, just a large shipment of uh, uh, chosen tipple, really. It's just a, a typical unboxing on a Sunday afternoon. Uh, <laughs> 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 no, not at that moment, we weren't. <laughs> no, right. uh, Interesting. So, this is Breaking Bad, says Lex. Uh, mecha fiction, yeah, written by someone who wrote for Spawn. Let's flipping good. Uh, Andy, I remember Spawn. I never liked it, <laughs> but had friends that did. The art was good. And um, Pamela's just, blurb was trying to hard for me. I like the beginning paragraphs. Uh, it's kind of not really a blurb for me. I marked that down, actually, because it's more of an elevator pitch than, than, a, than a, a blurb on a book. Um, 
Thank you, says Barbara. Yes, you got a fan there. Uh, lots of words to say when they're that close to your face, talking about the um, the uh, precipitating instant relief. And good writing, says Hannah. John Patel says, like this? Makes me think of Star Trek. Yes, I, I, that's right. It is, it is quite, it's got a Starship Trooper vibe. This was great, says Annie, who's always bang on the money. Um, Pamela Joe don't like the thing reference and it says that was confident some nice alien style dialogue i would have read on i would read on too actually barbara I agree monsieur dupre says like to lick their lips out feels a bit chunky a bit flaccid stacy enjoy the writing uh, enjoy the lt speech and matt says interesting a scene about washing war machines yet nicely tense i think so too what did you think jack I liked it. I liked the flow of it. Uh, when we were talking about confident writing, this was a hmm. piece of it, I think. Yeah. You know, and uh, I mean, there were a few little bits that jumped out. The person in the genius room who mentioned the the overlong dialogue in the rants of the lieutenant. It was a bit long, yeah. You know, it, it's just kind of, you know, in real life, people don't yeah. speak, you know, in that fully formed way. But... Um, I, I liked it. It flowed well. There were some ideas there. You get a sense of tension. You know, the the other person, I can't remember the name, the one who shouldn't have been there. You can see yeah. that there's some drama developing. It was all a bit, you know, it was a bit, you can't deny, there was a bit of a big trope in there of the lieutenants and the cadets and, yeah. you know, being, you know, being shouted at and ordered yeah, about and sure. all the rest of it. Absolutely. What I really liked. What I really liked, though, was the whatever it said in the blurb, a hundred ton bipedal yes. war machine. Meg you know, I mean, that's yeah. great. Yeah. yeah. You know, let's, let's have more of that, which is new, and less reliance on things that we've seen before. I know it's just part of the setup, mm. but... You know, the mm. Krieg, it was the Krieg machines. Yeah. I think the title needs some work as well. The Krieg doesn't sell anyone anything, to be yeah. honest. Yeah. Uh, I think you need to think about that. But uh, it was well written. But I'm imagining well the, the, the jacket or the poster, of course, or I'm imagining the book jacket is a huge, yeah. great, big, stompy <laughs> robot. That's what we want. We want yeah. stompy robots, don't we? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. We do. Thank you very much, Jack. Uh, first reactions, please, John. Yeah, I was thinking of the War of the Worlds type bipedal sort of spindly, yeah. spidery type things. But yeah. then I got more of an idea of a vehicle. I, I like the idea in the elevator picture blurb, which you know, which is, seems to be the nuts and bolts of the story. I, I think the scene that we get presented with here as the opening scene is is, is nice and it's, again well rendered. But it, it's not it's not the edge of your seat stuff really. Um, and I think. From that point of view, it's it's fine, uh, but it it sort of it doesn't chime quite so well with the blurb or the, the elevator pitch for me. But then again, you know we're looking at the first seven hundred words, so you know there's plenty of time for the the all the fun the fun and games to start really. Uh, but it was well written. I I too picked up on the idea that you know when when the the person was getting sort of. Um, Torn strip off. It didn't come across. It didn't, it didn't come across as particularly. The dialogue wasn't uh, genuine in that respect. But that could easily be fixed with an edit and just cutting back a bit and make, yeah. making, making less of it. Yeah. Um, I like the sound of the Kriegs. They sounded quite good. There were, I did have one of those kind of slightly Pavlovian's dog, Pavlov's dog responses because the, the word Krieg started jumping out of the script for me a little bit much, and I, I wondered if we. You know, it's as if the, the, the invention of the Kriegs great, but we got. I think we got the picture. Um, 
Well, we got, we, we, got a def- we got more than that. We got a definition from Monsieur Dupré in the Jane Stream. Says Craig equals war. Let's let's create. Of yeah. course, Craig lights. Yeah, yeah. I've often thought yeah, about Craig yeah, lights. Yeah. I never knew what that meant actually. Yeah, but it's yeah. it's war light, war lights, isn't it? Yeah, that's very good. Um, how do we think? Of, <clears throat> so, yeah, this is the thing that I'm a bit hung up on. I'm a bit stuck on this, right? So we've got a, according to the blurb, we've got a, a patriotic teen girl who's our protagonist. So I think a lot of people in publishing are automatically going to say, ah, that's YA. That's got to be YA then. Is is that, do you think there's any truth in that or is that just sort of rubbish? I think it's a very good market if you're going to go for it. And, you know, a teen hero, uh, you know, you driving riding one of these huge machines is a great image yeah but we don't know where the story goes so but i, I also got a, a a large dose of humor from it as well and mm. um, mm. kind of you know the, some fantastical elements that were there you know to make people smile and wonder and and so it's not like it's not gonna be you know i don't know yeah. the world war one savage drama you know what i mean it's gonna be yeah. much more light and flowing yeah and so it could quite well work as a YA. i don't know it could though it doesn't doesn't read as YA. i think i'm just i'm i'm just sort of trying to deal with what i think some publishers will will say mm. doesn't read as YA, but they will automatically try to put it in that particular pigeonhole i don't know if that's going to be an issue or not yeah that's why I, I think that's right hannah the writing does feel more adult than YA to me and lex says something very close to my heart he says we want stompy robots in fiction in my experience they make terrible upstairs neighbors <laughs> <laughs> which is very true good all right so we've all voted we've all had our say in that and we're fairly impressed actually tom let's look at the numbers <gasps> yes it's ever, ever upwards today on the show inexorable uh, sort of um progression you got a 62 which is pretty damn good and he says iron widow a mechanical ya novel has spent 20 odd weeks and the new york times bestseller list wow that would be the way to do it tom actually make it more consciously YA how about that there's a thought isn't it definitely a thought and our final submission of the day for me it's been a fantastic show today two amazing guests always always good company from the genius room I'm sorry to see it end but here we are our final submission Arena World Book One science fiction of course it's from Stephen and this is Stephen's blurb in the cutting edge of the future there's also a ragged edge to escape looming financial ruin in the slums of earth Mac and Neff sign up for the arena the most popular and lethal entertainment program in the pan-galactic republic while surviving the deadly denizens and environment of an artificial planet for cash prizes. They also uncover a diabolical plot to destroy all of civilization and soon find themselves in the uncomfortable position of being the only ones who can stop it. This is about Stephen, who's been publishing creative writing on various online sites for over two decades as well as three independently published novels. He's also edited three novels and a handful of academic articles as of this writing and has an MA in rhetoric and composition. I love that word, rhetoric. Yeah, goes right back to ancient Greece. When he can, he loves tabletop role-playing games. Oh, you're not the only one. 
almost always as the game's master because of the opportunity for building worlds for people to enjoy good definition of uh, what sci-fi writing does too and i think you're going to be as pleased as we are with this wonderful reading from bev arena world book one by stephen johnson read by bev chapter one you ever get the feeling that maybe your life's gone completely out of your control you feel all clammy somewhere in the region of where your heart's supposed to be. Breathing suddenly becomes a struggle and your muscles turn to an extra wobbly sort of jelly. Right now that feeling's pretty strong for me as I look around the mostly empty waiting room of the circus recruitment office, smelling the stink of sweat and urine that's soaked into the puke green walls. With fusion power so cheap these days, You'd think they'd have figured out how to make something better than stark white lights that alternate between flickering and buzzing. But I guess it's a universal time-spanning rule that if you've got to go to an office, you've got to be annoyed by the faulty light fixtures. There's a whole sheaf of paperwork on my lap right now. That and a pencil. I wish I'd brought a book or something because once I've finished up all the forms I haven't had anything else to do and the boredom is starting to get to me. Of course, if I'd brought a book there's the danger that someone around the neighbourhood might have seen me and then word would get round that I'm a nerd. The absurdity hits me pretty quick, of course. I'm about to sign up for the opportunity, nay, the privilege, to go and get killed in front of a pan-galactic audience, and here I am, worried that people might think I'm an egghead. Yeah, I should have brought a book. Something written by an Earth author would have been best, especially if the author was British. If you're going to read in English, nothing beats an old-school British author. Kinda a shame that Great Britain's been depopulated for years now. Same thing with most of Earth, actually, but like old Thomas Wolfe said, you can't go home again. Us humans have a way bigger playground to mess up now, anyway. Nothing left to do but people watch. I fixate on the guy still left in the waiting room, besides me, of course. He's the pudgy sort, no chin to speak of, still wearing glasses in this day and age, where surgery to fix your peepers is so cheap, You'd have to be something deeper than dead broke to still be wearing traditional lenses. That or exactly the sort of bookworm that I'm worried my friends will think I am if they ever caught me with my nose between pages. So obsessed with literature that you'd rather buy books than food or shelter or basic surgical upgrades. Then the receptionist up the front is calling out the guy's name. Something so nondescript it doesn't even register for me, and it's just me in that awful room, all alone with my thoughts. Oh well, at least there's still a window. Actually, the view's not so bad here. It's not an especially nice part of town, all the better to be available to the lower classes that usually sign up for the circus, but it's pretty high up, away from the grime and stench down below. And I mean high up, like tilt your head a little and you can see clouds brushing around the next couple of floors above. A little more and I'd need oxygen gear. Up here I can watch the flying cars. Toys for the rich, since they're the only ones who can afford the auto-navigation equipment that makes it possible to use one of those things without crashing into stuff in the chaos of the city. 
You never see a flying car down where I live, just three stories up from the dead beats at rock bottom. Sometimes you can hear them when the weather's just right and the wind's not blowing too hard down the canyon of buildings and you tilt your head out of Dad's bakery at just the right angle. And straight to the Eugenius room. And we are... Title, yeah, title, Sarah says something interesting. Title made me think of Magic the Gathering. I think that's a good thing. I think it probably is. Um, blurb doesn't give me a USP, says Hannah. Blurb has so many cliches in it that I happen to love, mind, yeah. Um, well, that's the thing about cliches, isn't it? That they, they do, I mean, they do work until they start working, of course, because through complete overuse. Uh, Stacey says, D&D! Hannah says, I agree, Stacey. Give it its own title. Annie, um, yeah, Stacey says, book one in the title. Not a huge fan of that. Arena World is the series, but shouldn't the book have its own title too? Yeah, I, I agree. Um, and they are saying the first two sentences uh, lacks a perfect definition of submitting a manuscript Arena World says Stacey gives a Mad Max feel it does I think we are probably going to make some some comments on that in a moment I think Um, and Mr Dupre is talking about the uh, the blurb uh, he says something I completely agree with. Consider slimming by removing the on the and rewording like the cutting edge also has a ragged edge. Absolutely. It's a nice metaphor. just needs you know, a more uh, intense expression, right? I like it's in the present tense, but it just feels like an inner monologue so far. It does, doesn't it? And that is common. That is echoed by a number of other, other people. Hannah says, for example, something better hook, hook me quickly. I don't know this character, so I don't care about his monologue. And Matt says, feels like the sort of intro that informs the author about the character. Yes. But the reader doesn't need or want. Jack. Yeah, not for me, this one, I'm afraid. Uh, like people have said, the uh, Hunger Games and Maze Runner. And yeah, there's plenty of room to do it again. I'm sure somebody will. And I'm sure there'll be a new movie with a slightly different spin on it. Mm. But it depends how you do it. It has to be done really well. And the blurb, you know, just doesn't do it well. The blurb just repeats that trope that we know it so does, well. It does Not repeat the, it. There's nothing new in there. There's no new yeah. angle, no new dimension, no new. You know, I mean, you could co- come up with, well, you know, you could come up a battle of principles, or you know, it's a moral fight this time instead of a prize for cash, or but you mm. know what I mean, a new spin mm. on it rather than just you know. It's a very old trope, but, isn't it? Actually, it goes right back to ancient it Rome. It's bread and circuses, really. And, exactly. you know, it, it does need a new spin. That doesn't spin. mean it can't work, but you need a new mm. dimension to it, mm. you know, a way to pick it up. So there's that. Uh, that doesn't give it a great start for me. Uh, and then I think the writing is, I think it's overwritten. The, the inner monologue goes on too long. Mm. You know, who is it? Do we care? What's interesting about him in this position? It's, uh, and it's you know, three adjectives where one will do, you yeah. know, in... Yeah. In, yeah. in almost every description, you know, yeah. it's just too much. It needs, it needs a, a red pencil, I'm afraid. Yeah, Mr. Dupre says, I'm getting a dystopian vibe. And Pamela J says, this is a riff on Squid Games, Rollerball. Yeah, Rollerball, of course, that was that was Braden's focuses too. Yeah. Uh, <coughs> yeah, get in the fast, tell us how this is new. Yeah, he, de- he desperately needs that. And my own um, feeling also is that, actually, Stephen, I think you're kind of writing yourself into this. And, um, you know, you know what the rule is. Write the first page, throw it right away. Write the first chapter, throw it away. Um, what did you think, Johnny? 
Yeah, I would agree with a lot of the comments people have made. Though I think there is a good voice in there. I think um, mm. there's a voice coming through. But but I think I think it does go on a bit long. And I think you know the internal monologue stretching over the whole uh, 700 words is probably a bit long for it. But there yeah. were some nice touches, and, and I. I very much got the dystopian feel, and I thought that was nicely sketched in with very economic phrases. So it wasn't, you know, mm. uh, it didn't go into the great depth about the world being decimated, but you get the impression that, that Earth's knackered, basically. Um, yes. Humans have sort of gone out for, to further reaches, all with an economy of words, which is which is quite nicely handled. Um, but yeah, the, uh, first thing I've, I made, I made a note when I when it came up, so it's just Hunger Games. Well, it's not Hunger Games, but it, it's there, there's a kind of a reference to that there as well, that the idea that people are playing out their lives, in this case, um, yeah. Hunger Games is for their existence but in this case it's for money um, it has a has a that kind of uh, familiar feel to it um, mm. but I, I still quite I still quite enjoyed it uh, but I think I'd like it to move on a bit sooner it, you know from from the opening definitely yeah do we watch this kind of thing anymore I'm thinking squid games which of course has been hugely successful on Netflix mm. um, do we let's put our crazy thing I, I was aware of Squid Game, but, but I never watched it. I didn't yeah. watch it. Even, even when on the kind of hoopla I came up about it, I, thought, I saw clips of thought, no, it's not really for me. But yeah. um, it, it did phenomenally well, of course, didn't it? It did. Do you think? Do you think we're at the end? Because everything in, in publishing just goes in cycles, really, and everything you know, like vampires mm. and so on. It just gets it, um, flogged to death, and then it, it sort of dies out, and then in a few years' time, it gets mm. reinvented again. Is is this something that's going to get reinvented? Do you think the whole bread and circuses thing, or do you think it's it's, it's actually sort of fading? Any 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 thoughts about that? If it's done well and if it's done differently, I think it'll continue. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you know, it'll reach a high point and then it'll go down, but it'll come back again. Like you say, if it's been around since the Roman times, it's not going to disappear in the next six months, is it? Well, I, I don't know. It depends how to, to what extent it's overpublished, really. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, they, they always kill that golden goose somehow, they manage to. Uh, final check-up with um, the junior stream. Andy says, and he knows what he's talking about, of course, the television. Netflix are planning an actual real... Squid Games now, really? <laughs> so I guess it's still working. Hannah says Squid Games is bringing season two. I never wanted to watch the first one. Stacey said, the thing is, it's popular right now, but may not be in a month or so. And Annie says, I can't imagine it'll ever go away, especially the way things are going in the world. Yes, that's right. Or maybe we want a bit of escapism. Thank you very much, guys. Let's look at the numbers. You have got a 49, Stephen, a 49. And I feel a bit guilty, actually, marking you down on the title. I don't, I don't like the title. Um, if you'd given me a stronger, more distinctive title, I would have given you significantly more for that. Uh, I like the writing craft. I, I gave you good marks for the writing craft, but the title for me is just it's not distinctive enough. In fact, the title in, in by itself says generic. So let's let's move on from that. Um, golly, let's see who the winner is of uh, this week's show, shall we? Wow, that looks to me like it's actually you, Tom, isn't it? Yeah, submission number four. Here we go. <laughs> Congratulations, Tom. You've done it. First winner, first month, first in the, in the month, July. We all liked it. 
a well-deserved winner. Oh, I've had a good time today. I hope you've had fun too. If you've been in the Genius Room or watching us live on YouTube or wherever else, I hope you've enjoyed it. Of course, it's a huge cooperative effort to bring pop-ups to so many people behind the scenes, contribute so much, not the least of whom, of course, are Kate and Rachel, our bookers, and all our wonderful narrators led by Mother Hen herself. It's Emily. Um, you know who you are. Thank you very much for all the hard work you put in. Why don't we do this all over again, same time, next Sunday. See you then. Hit it! Ready? Ready?